Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Over the past few episodes, we focused largely on crypto native trading businesses. We met some amazing entrepreneurs with the expertise to help their investors gain exposure to digital assets. Today, we shift our attention to the world of on-chain credit. In particular, we ask ourselves, can decentralized finance protocols deliver a better, i.e. more efficient, transparent, and cost-effective way to originate, structure, and finance real-world assets? Can they help broaden the addressable institutional private credit investor base beyond insurance companies, banks, and hedge funds? Can they facilitate the allocation of capital towards productive uses in the real economy? Can they fully implement into code the collateral administration, quality tests, and other portfolio constraints required to achieve real-time, verifiable compliance with indenture rules? And finally, can they fully eliminate the layering of arranger, placement, collateral administration, legal, and other fees embedded in the credit lifecycle? A few notable DeFi protocol platforms have emerged over the past few years, among them names such as Centrifuge, Credits, Goldfinch, Maple Finance, or TruFi. All share a common belief that DeFi can positively deliver on our set of questions. All are well-backed by crypto-savvy institutional investors. Together, these protocols currently have over $360 million of loan notional outstanding and have originated over $4.3 billion since inception. For this new credit ecosystem to thrive and emerge as a viable conduit to finance the real economy beyond the proof of concept, these protocols need to solve real pain points. For example, are they enabling access to depositors who wouldn't otherwise have access to high-quality private credit? Are they significantly improving on the net returns for investors? They also need to convince lenders and depositors that asset portfolios are managed in a way that achieves resilience to the various risks typically faced by credit investors. Without high-quality underwriters and collateral pool managers, DeFi protocols face an uphill battle in capturing capital market share from either crypto-native treasuries or traditional lenders. Our guest today is an expert in institutional credit risk management. Glenn Jones founded Icebreaker Finance in 2022 with an ambition to leverage blockchain technology to improve the efficiency of capital markets. Icebreaker acts as a lending pool delegate on the Maple Finance DeFi platform. A pool delegate is responsible for negotiating loan terms with borrowers, performing due diligence, and liquidating collateral in the event of a default. Glynn believes that security selection, portfolio construction, and risk management skills are a prerequisite to unlocking the efficiencies brought upon by DeFi protocols. Before founding Icebreaker Finance, Glynn held senior roles in institutional banking in London, Singapore, and Australia, including as a managing director at Deutsche Bank. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I grew up in Sydney, Australia, most of my time. I spent some of my childhood in the United States in Chicago, but um, most of it was in Sydney. And I grew up at the risk of being a stereotype, determined that I wanted to be a soldier. Um, And uh, it took me a little bit of realization when I subsequently did join the army, that I wasn't particularly tough and that I wasn't particularly good at having long periods of discomfort to realize that maybe that wasn't the career for me, but I had to put the green on to figure that out. So um, that was my childhood in Australia. Um, and uh, I moved back to Australia five years ago after nearly 20 years offshore. And I'm uh, glad to say Australia is still a really nice place. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you got recruited or did you volunteer? I don't know what the uh, the system is like in Australia. No, so it's um, it's been voluntary. Uh, conscription went out a long time in Australia, a long time ago. So for me, as someone who um, I was uh, always really enjoyed the bush, 
and I had some, uh, I think, um, misguided perceptions of what being a soldier was all about, um, I joined. And I joined as a reservist, a national guard in the United States. Um, and they had a range of schemes here in Australia, which allowed you to participate a significant amount. So you could do the same training as a regular army soldier or, or less. I spent on and off just under five years with them. And it was fantastic. And when I had to get myself through university and pay the bills, they paid you tax-free dollars. So I guess that's a little bit similar to the National Guard in the United States. And uh, it was wonderful. I'm very grateful for the time I had. I got to see some parts of the world with them, uh, learn a whole lot, meet some wonderful people, and maybe figure out that I'm uh, not as tough as I thought I was. One thing I wouldn't want to, for a second with your listeners, I uh, people have served in special forces. I have not. People have actually um, been downrange and had live weapons and real... I have not. I served in the 1990s. It was an era of peace for the most parts of the world. The deployments did not involve, frankly, people didn't get hurt in most of the sort of G7, 12 military. So I, I take my hats off to people that is so common in the United States have done that kind of service and expose that kind of risks. Um, I've never done it. Um, it's a whole different kettle of fish. So I wouldn't profess to have any knowledge in it. Yeah. So you, you keep coming back to this, but um, you know, you had to have been a little bit tough though, to be able to, to withstand that for five years. What are the top three things that come to mind when you think about that experience, you talk about having met people, having traveled, having dealt probably with uncomfortable situations. Am I summarizing this correctly or are there other things that stand out? No, no, I think that's all um, very eloquent. I, I'd add one more. I, I thought the army was extraordinary. I was very fortunate to have, frankly, a pretty privileged upbringing. I got to spend most of my childhood around a certain socio-demographic group. Um, not to slight that group, but it's pretty restrictive. Um, one thing was wonderful about the army is all walks of life came from everywhere, geographically, rich, poor, educated, not educated. I love that. I thought it was a melting pot. And all that really mattered, particularly I was in the infantry, all that really mattered is that um, you're a team, you went out there, you had a job to do, and everybody had to chip in. And whatever you were before didn't matter. So I thought that was pretty special. Were there topics at school that you were better at than others? Were you numbers inclined? I think a lot of my guests tend to fall into that, that camp. Was there anything that you preferred? And then what did you end up studying in college? Yeah, so I was always a little bit on the geeky end of the spectrum. You know, I was in the chess club and all that sort of more geeky stuff. Uh, so I enjoyed my maths, I enjoyed my economics and a bit of history and politics, but um, uh, probably more at the more numerate end of the spectrum. And that just was natural for me. I was no great sports people. I was always in you know, like the C or the D team or whatever. I enjoyed getting out in the field, but no great hand-eye coordination, unfortunately. And then I started off as an accountant. There was no sophisticated choice. I, uh, I looked at it and I asked myself at, at 17, I was working at a McDonald's store to try and earn a buck while I was getting through high school. And I said, I really do not want to be doing this for the rest of my career. I found it very hard and very and very long. And uh, I looked at uh, which professions could earn the most money. And at the time, when you looked at the graduate milk rounds, it was auditing. So uh, I applied for Arthur Anderson and I, they helped put me through my undergrad and I went to work for them as an auditor. Um, so that's where I started and there was no great insight. It was just who's going to pay me a decent wedge. And at the time, I, I think I, my first salary was $13,000 and I thought I'd hit the absolute jackpot. That's amazing. I mean, look, uh, if there's one thing, you probably know how to read a financial statement. And uh, I think you've got probably some of the stronger basics there. Accounting is a great foundation for that. Once you start discovering that it's it's not the end-all be-all, how do you transition from being an auditor to becoming a banker? Yeah, so I've been on a bit of a windy path and um, a little bit unusual. And uh, that has uh, that has sort of positives and negatives that come with it. I've had the privilege of working in a lot of different aspects of the value chain around banking. So I've worked around pricing, uh, worked in risk management, I've worked in finance functions, worked in operations, 
worked in technology for a little while. So that's been wonderful for me. I've really liked it. I've, I've always tended to um, try and find the things that uh, I, I'm interested in, I'm curious about, that are hard and find people I really like working for that motivate me, that will get that little bit of discretionary effort out of me and flock to it. And I was very lucky to join um, the banking sector at a time when it was really growing rapidly. So when I got in in 2001, the sector was just coming out of, well, 2000, just coming out of sort of dot-com. Um, the derivatives market was still growing very, very quickly. You know, in London, it was almost a go out to Liverpool Street Station and find someone that could do three plus three and give them a job. It was growing like gangbusters. So that was a great time. There were lots of lots of weaknesses in the regulatory market infrastructure at the time. But um, for as an employee, I, I'm very grateful. I got to work in some really large banks, work around the world and uh, work in different parts of the uh, different functions within the value chain and, and learn a lot. So it felt pretty natural to me. But at the same time, I, I left that world at the beginning of um, beginning of last year. I felt like it. Um, I wasn't learning as much perhaps anymore. As I'd like to, and I was in a fortunate position where I was uh, less focused on on the next paycheck. Um, and banking uh, was very it was a, you know, it paid me every month on time and paid me well and uh, for many years. So it was a real privilege to be in a position where I thought, well, maybe I, I don't have to be quite as reliant on it now. I can take a little bit more entrepreneurial risk. And here we are. So when you say Liverpool Street, is that Deutsche Bank in, in London? Because I I remember that station very well. I was commuting into Deutsche Bank. I know you spent some time there. Yeah, yeah, UBS was there as well. Yep. And then I sort of moved to, I uh, moved across the block um, and then uh, went to Deutsche. We're talking pre-08. These are very formative years in the world of credit, right? I mean, credit was booming, financial engineering, the progression in terms of sophistication of what you could do with and for clients. That must have been a very interesting era to be in that space, to witness. Of course, there was a credit bubble, and I think you know 2008 put a halt to a, a lot of the excesses there. But there were also very interesting things being done, right, and creative solutions. And you probably got to see and hone in your skills from a from an underwriting standpoint. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, at the time I was working in a product control function around uh, exotics. So I wasn't writing the risk, I wasn't originating, I wasn't distributing. I was effectively really trying to understand the P&L, the balance sheet, the risk explain, understand what's driving the performance, understand the, uh, uh, that's a very model driven environment, as you know, in credit derivatives, particularly synthetic products. So you, you're really starting to understand what are the parameters that drive the valuation? What are them, which of them are observable, not observable? How deep is the liquidity in those markets? So uh, I loved it, uh, found it esoteric, very interesting. Indeed, one of my reflections at the time is that um, I look back on some things that I found really, really interesting. And I actually stopped asking what, a question that I now ask more often. I wasn't asking, what is the actual commercial utility of this to a, a corporate? What is the actual utility of this to the, the economic system? I was just almost so fascinated by the complexity of it that... Um, I became enthralled with it and loved it. Whereas perhaps now, sometimes when I look at really highly structured or exotic products, I'm, I'm probably more focused now on, okay, well, I've been out there talking to treasurers, talking to companies that um, are needing to solve commercial problems. How does this solution help them manage their capital stack, manage their risks? You know, and sometimes simple things work. They do. And it's interesting because in some, some respect, crypto just went through a similar wave in that for a while, there was a lot of financial engineering for the sake of financial engineering. And that harkens back to, I think, that period between 2001 and 2008 and legacy also of the bankers trust and the financial innovation that took place in the 90s. But it became excessive pre-08 and crypto just went through this. So it's great to hear you talk about how you're thinking these days about what is useful to your clients, what is useful to your counterparts. 
Shifting on, you said you were now in a situation when you left as a banker where you could take on more entrepreneurial risk. So tell us a little bit about the business that you started, how it got started, who did you start it with? What was the initial impetus there? Yeah, so probably the initial impetus was a, a sense um, that I, uh, and I don't mean this to sound glib, but um, I felt my rate of learning had slowed down in the banks or in the bank I was in. And maybe if I'd been in a different bank in a different function, a different mindset, that wouldn't have been the case. I really liked the colleagues I worked with. I'm really grateful for the time I got to spend. I just didn't feel like I was learning quite as much. I felt a very significant portion of my, my day, I could look out a month ahead and I would see uh, risk committees, various committees taking up very significant portions of my time. So I, I didn't feel there was, I was really having that much opportunity for creativity, building something new, referencing back in that sort of time of, even uh, 9, 10, 11, there was so much regulatory change. There was a lot of creativity that was happening inside of the banks. So I didn't feel that creative impulse were quite being met. And I probably wasn't having much fun, frankly. Um, they're necessarily very politically correct places. So it felt like it was the right time. that I, I wasn't being constructive, I think, as a leader anymore to stay inside that environment. I think if you're going to lead inside one of those large organizations, you need to be really committed to the culture. You need to be a carrier of it. You need to be an advocate of it. And I just didn't think that I, I was um, I was meeting that bar anymore. So so there was a desire for me to go and do something else. Um, I've been really interested in crypto for a little while, um, dabbling on the side like many people have, and learning a lot. At that point, around getting fascinated in things, I I, lo I, I lost money at various points in crypto through um, through last year and the year before and the year before that. Not even on market risk, even on the basics of moving um, assets between different chains and. There was so much of that that I just just made me curious. I wanted to learn more. But where I got really excited is I was introduced through someone that became a third party investor in our business that um, I'm not in a position to name, but someone who's been a bit of an inspiration for me. And they introduced me to um, to Maple Finance, and I was pretty impressed when I when I looked. And there's things to love and perhaps things less to love. But what I loved when I saw about DeFi. I love the transparency and the potential. It really brought it alive for me for what private credit markets maybe could become. The concept of being able to see here is a here is a pool of capital which has been deployed to these borrowers at these terms, and you can see the performance. And those borrowers, particularly if they're emerging borrowers on their corporate journey, uh, being able to build a a track record of payment, being able to build a credit history then being able to attract differentiated capital, lower cost of capital. I just saw the germ in what the, the beginnings of what Maple Finance was trying to do that I thought just had enormous long run uh, potential with lots of wrinkles to work out and work through over time about product features, about regulatory fit and lots of other considerations. But there was something I just got really excited about and wanted to be involved in. So I'm, I'm very grateful for a long time ago, a guy called um, Sydney, who one of the co-founders of um, Maple, taking the call, spent some time with me. And I said, well, I'd love to get involved. And it was through that relationship that that triggered the thought of, well, uh, I feel like I have some skills in credit and I don't have a great deal of skills in technology, but I'm interested in it. They had started the journey. I'd been spending some time through my personal network around the Bitcoin mining segment. I had some views on credit around that sector. Um, and all those things sort of converged and to say, well, I was of the view that the Bitcoin mining sector from that May of last year, I thought the pricing of risk was about to become much more attractive. I think that has that has now occurred. Less homogenous pricing of risk, much more differentiated. So I thought that could get quite interesting. I'd love that's an emerging sector, a high yield. Um, thought that's really interesting for on-chain to play. Really liked Sid and the team. 
So all of that came together, Icebreaker Finance. We formed it in June last year. Um, and we're a small little crew. There's only six of us. We're split between New York and New York and Sydney. We've got one person in the in the Sunshine Coast, Glenn, of Australia. Um, so I shouldn't say he's in Sydney. Um, and uh, and we're trying to have a real go of it, make this business successful and see if we can make a difference to some of our clients. There's both a financial and human capital aspect to starting anything. So you've got a thesis. Sounds like you have an infrastructure because that's, that's really what a Maple and, and some of their competitors provide is, is the infrastructure to be able to go out and underwrite with utmost transparency and efficiency specific types of credits, essentially build those pools that you can then manage, underwrite, and offer access to investors uh, from a lending and investing perspective. But before we go into the specifics of the business itself, the operation, the inception of the operation, was it personal capital? Did you go out and raise capital? June 2022 was a horrendous time to be out fundraising, if I recall. Yeah, it, um, it was. Um, I, I was fortunate through my network that between my personal capital and one other third party, that was sufficient capital for the business. And I hope we don't have to ever do another capital call. We are, we are not a business that's going to house risk in the form of a traditional underwriter might do, and we will not, we're not licensed to do so um, either. So we're not going to house risk in that manner. We, for the most part, will take most of our revenue through fees of one sort or the other. Um, so I think we're a capital light business. Um, so our hope is that uh, we can generate sufficient revenue to put food on the table and, uh, and deliver some returns to our investors in the meantime. So I'm fortunate to be in a position where I could put some personal capital in. And I was fortunate to have the networks where I didn't go through the process that so many people do, which is to have to go and make X many phone calls um and iterate so many times as i speak to so many entrepreneurs i've had to work so hard to get that i for better or for worse didn't um and uh, i could really focus all of my time um on building a team and focus much more on building a deep understanding of the bitcoin mining segment which i um i like to think that we have uh, a real edge on that across the full capital stack about how to think about that industry and who the participants are that uh that perhaps have more sustainable business models so a bit lucky in that regard you know sometimes it's it's luck sometimes it's also by design to your point about people pounding the pavement and trying to raise some money you know sometimes you can make those 100 calls and meetings and still not be able to raise money so it's fairly fortunate by construction it sounds like your your business is not as capital intensive at least at the inception so you could focus on your thesis and also focus on the matter at hand as opposed to being on the road so is it fair to say that it's predominantly a, an advisory business to work with both sides of the equation, the Bitcoin miners who are looking at their own capital stack strategically and saying, okay, what, what resources do we need in order to be effective, in order to be able to grow, sometimes in order to be able to survive? I think it's an industry that suffered a lot over the past year, given the price dislocations. And then on the other side, folks are looking to put money to work towards that part of the credit spectrum. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. So there is some, um, sometimes and we're engaged today on a fee base to do some advisory to some miners to support them thinking about their capital structure and how they might want to approach um, a raising capital in future. So we'll call it just classical advisory work. Um, that may evolve into us partnering with a licensed US broker dealer um, to uh, support them on capital raises. That hasn't happened yet, but we've got a sort of partnership that we're working on there to do that if that transitions to the next step. So we've got a couple of different miners that we're working with in that regard where we collect some fees for doing so. Uh, then we also um, uh, will collect some fees and have not yet uh, when we uh, originate uh, private debt, private notes 
onto uh, the Maple platform. Now, we haven't yet written any. We've been uh, raised some uh, money that has uh, been a permission pull only. Capital has gone into the pool and we've got some uh, additional uh, capital that's sitting on the sidelines waiting. But we haven't found enough deals. Ultimately, in the game of credit, you've got to have a thesis, you've got to originate, you've got to structure deals that you think deliver attractive returns. Um, and we haven't seen the volume of deals um, that uh, we've got more capital than I have deals. Now, I think that situation will change. We've evolved our origination approach, some lessons learned for me in that regard, um, and tightened our thesis. So I think we will see some of those, uh, some of those loans get issued uh, over the next three months. You know, you talked about the regulatory status of your business uh, and how you're not an investment advisor necessarily, but and you're also looking to partner with existing broker dealers. Were there additional hurdles or operational considerations that you had to take into account when setting up your business or was it pretty seamless? No, I think so. And everyone takes it. There's a lot of judgment on this. While there is some ambiguity, some would suggest there's and there is significant ambiguity as to what licensing is required to conduct certain activities in the jurisdictions that we operate in. Some would suggest there's enormous ambiguity in that. My take is there isn't all that much ambiguity. It's I think it's I find it to be relatively clear. So um, there's a lot of activities that perhaps others have chosen to do that I, I have chosen to not do um, uh, in lieu of having certain licenses. So I um, I'm very cognizant of that, and that guides what we will do and won't do. So uh, we think about that a lot. I discuss that a lot with Maple. That platform's evolving. I expect it to continue to evolve. Um, like anything where it's a, a very disruptive technology, I think it's, um, it'll evolve over time for the better. Um, but it's a, it's a constant consideration for us in terms of what role we play. And I would say your, your TradFi background probably plays in your favor in that you're used to operating within a set of rules and a variety of different regulatory regimes. So at least it factors into your thinking. One of the things that DGEN teams have had to get a handle uh, on over the last, I'd say, year and a half, couple of years is at least bringing as part of their advisory boards or their management teams or just the ecosystem, familiarize themselves with the fact that, yes, one day you can get that letter from the authorities that is a cease and desist, or you know you might be called upon to justify certain transaction and so on and so forth things that were very much not part of the picture for them so i'd say your background probably helps you think structurally in regards to what is and what may happen from a regulatory standpoint okay just pick up on that one look i i, I couldn't agree more and it's really and i my team and i are pretty aligned on it and it means we'll have to forgo some opportunities as a as a, a CFO inside the banks a couple of times where I was CFO of multi-billion dollar businesses and had responsibilities spanning everywhere from Russia to Argentina to Brazil to so many different countries, um, I've met with many of the world's um, securities regulators. Um, and those conversations, and invariably my, and again, I'll say something here that to a lot of the DeFi community and uh, the crypto community, they may disagree with. Um, my view is that uh, most regulation that exists today uh, uh, does more good than it does harm. And most of it is designed with good intent. And most of the professionals that I've come across at almost any regulator, I think I would have met with the G12, all of them, plus most of the BRICS, um, I find them to be hardworking, thoughtful, yes, possibly a little bit conservative, but hey, that's the job. They're trying to protect overall financial economic stability. So um, I got a lot of respect for that and I want to stay within those lines. And sometimes where the lines aren't clearly prescribed, then I go back to intent. 
and I ask myself, um, well, what is the what, what what is the intent of the regulatory architecture? What is it trying to protect? Who from what? What conduct rules? Are, okay, how can in the absence of a prescriptive guidance, how would I translate that intent? All right, well, let's do that. I think the self-management is best practice when running a business, right? It has to come from within. And if that's the, the ethos that you guys operate under uh, within the team, I think it's, it's, a, it's a net positive and certainly for, for the industry to have people entering it with those concerns at the top of their mind. Are you, is it a lone Glenn ruler in your own business? Are you a solo founder? You mentioned a team of a few individuals. Are they partners in the business? Where did you find those individuals? Yeah, so they're employees in the business who are incentivized in the way they're compensated for the business to perform and they'll get to participate in that. Um, but no, I'm, I'm the founder and I run the business. Um, and the third party investor um, is someone I have a chat with once or once every fortnight perhaps. But operationally, those decisions um, about day-to-day running of the business are, are left to me. Um, I think my team would be a better would be a better judge of what, what that leadership style is and culture that we're building. Um, but where I think we're very lucky is that if I look at the team, I think we're we're collecting a variety of skills. Um, and any one of us doesn't have the package. My hope is as a collective we do, and I mean that both in terms of hard skills and soft skills. Um, so uh, everything from um, we have uh, uh, someone who is a lawyer in the team and qualified as a lawyer. While I've spent a lot of time looking at legal docs through my career, um, there's some training that he has, which I think is um, leads to much better decisions. We have someone who's done uh, an equity research role at one of the majors before. I find that very helpful. We've had someone who sat on the sales desk to high net wealth at one of the majors. I find that very helpful. We have someone who sat on the structuring desk for a corporate's business. I find that very helpful. So I think between all of us, we have someone who's uh, run their own Bitcoin mining operation. Um, uh, so it's that combination. And, and like any new team, I'm, we're still figuring out how to get the best out of all of us. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm still learning to be quiet sometimes, which I need to do and, and let those people do what they're really good at and just shut up. Um, so hopefully that'll just get better over time. But we, we don't have really any ambition to grow into a... I, I, I had the privilege of running very, very large teams in my banking career. Um, if, if our business evolved into, I'll throw out a number of 20 to 30 people that know each other really well with a tight set of shared values, um, delivering some values to my clients, earning some good money for us at the time, uh, helping an industry evolve in a way which I think is consistent with regulation and, and, the, and the intent of regulation and the spirit of it and leveraging the technology, well, I think that'd be a great act. I think people would be very happy to work in that environment. Uh, what you seem to have is a shared culture and a set of highly non-overlapping skills. And that's really what you need, especially at this stage, because there's a lot of blind spots and the more you can cover them beyond founder or the founding team, the better you'll do. Let's talk about the business in, in more specifics now. What is your approach to identifying monetization opportunities, right? And how differentiated do you believe your approach is? Fundamentally, the act of helping to originate and distribute credit is something that people have been doing for a long, long time. And, and I start with there is a core set of skills around that that has nothing to do with crypto. Um, and I look at blockchain technology as is there something there that will enable us to play a part in that value chain of originating, structuring and distributing risk in a way that delivers better outcomes. But it's a, frankly a secondary thought. I'm excited about what it can do, but fundamentally our skills are around um, originating, 
so having a top-down thesis about a particular industry, about what, what we think will drive performance in that, which participants will perform, segment the industry, then go find those credits that um, match that, structuring solutions for that, getting really comfortable around pricing of risk. Um, and obviously, we want, to, we want to participate in deals where we're being paid more than we should for a given amount of risk, and then uh, distributing that risk. So there's lots of what I've just described that I think we could have had a conversation in 1920 and we would have said the same things. When we talk about the underlying skills required to do all of that, I think the conversation we would have had in 1980 is the same as the conversation we have today. Many of those economic underpinnings there about the choice of capital structure, about how you want to understand cash flows, how you want to understand security, enforcement. Um, I don't think those fundamentals, frankly, have changed very much. Some of the business model nuances may have changed, but business models always evolve. So I think there's a, um, a credit handbook, set of skills, which I don't think has changed all that much. Um, so the question to your question of how do you have an edge in that, um, and particularly for us as a new team, we, uh, we've chosen to be very narrow. Uh, so that's one. So we're really just spending a time on Bitcoin mining. I, I don't think there are many other teams of six that would say that. Uh, the, doing this part of the value chain. Now, some might be say, hey, the sectors, you, you're way over banking that sector. There just isn't a fee pool. There isn't a revenue pool to compensate you adequately. And yeah, that's a, a valid perspective, perhaps. So one is to stay narrow in, in what we do and then try and become really good students of that, um, that industry and apply some of that textbook. I think the second thing is to pick the time when you enter the sector. So we were very conscious. We looked at it, well, I looked at it back in January and I was of the view that, market pricing at risk was not attractive. There was a lot of capital. The end of 2000, I'm going to get my years modeled up, 2021, early 22, flowing into the sector. And uh, the pricing of that, whether on the equity or on the debt markets, um, and the structuring, it, we just, well, at the time it was just me, just, just didn't think that was particularly sustainable. And we've lived through a few of these markets um, over the years. So... The other, I hope, competitive advantage is as most of the um, people that have been involved in the value chain of uh, originating construction, distributing risk, um, their books have blown up. Uh, they're exiting the sector. They don't have enough capital to support what they're doing. There's less participants in it. The fee pool's shrunk. Um, many are very bearish about the opportunity for the underlying Bitcoin mining sector to survive. Well, uh, that for me, that if selfishly, that for me is terrific because I don't have 15, 20 competitors. When we want to have a conversation with an innovative Bitcoin miner um, that is uh, doing some interesting work around that, and I can elaborate on that later, what we think that looks like if you'd like to, then they haven't had 20 calls from other bankers in the previous two days. I think if I went back to November last year, um, I would have called and they said, yeah, they would have said, would you mind talking to my secretary? Because I've had 16 bankers in here with their, with their pitch books yesterday. Um, and I've just been taken to the Super Bowl. So what have you got for me? Now, um, so th I think there are two, two things which might give us a bit of a chance to build something interesting. It, it's amazing how much a, a year makes in, in, in difference, right? Um, and certainly the ability to, to be nimble and to be narrow and focused. So this brings me to my next question. It sounds to me like in order to run your business, given the narrow focus that you have right now, you don't necessarily need to have a deep understanding of blockchain technology, even as the enabler being on the Maple Finance platform. But you do need to have a surgical understanding of the Bitcoin industry and the mechanics and the economics, 
I go back to your accounting and auditing background, which I'm sure comes in handy when you think about how these businesses operate, where the pain points are. For listeners who are probably nowhere near as competent as you are in understanding that sector, could you just briefly describe what those high-level pain points are in terms of the capital structure and how you can help them? Yeah, so if the word Bitcoin miner is not a single business model. There is a range of business models, which are very, very different. So I'm just going to pick out one of them. And that is someone that we might call a, a vertically integrated self-miner. And what that vertically, who doesn't own their own energy resources. So that person in this particular business model I'm describing, there's a range of these, consumes electricity from the grid, wherever they are in the world. That electricity is used to power machines, computers, ASICs. Those ASICs mine, they get a Bitcoin reward for their activity. So Bitcoin mining is monetizing energy. Now, the business model's revenue in this simplistic example is denominated therefore in Bitcoin. That's what comes out. But they've probably had to spend a whole bunch of money to buy equipment, to buy uh, energy, to pay staff. And a lot of that will be US dollar denominated. Now, they're also operating in a sector where the revenue, the Bitcoin uh, that they earn is a highly volatile instrument. So one minute's up, one minute's down. You wake up. It's also an industry where it's extremely hard to find hedging as you would in normal mining industries that allow you to hedge out that volatility. So often you're a price taker on the vol. That's a tough place to be in general. Your energy costs. Likewise, you can get some certainty through power purchase agreements in some markets for some time horizons, but that can also have significant volatility in it. And a lot of your underlying infrastructure that you use is what I'll call single purpose infrastructure. So if you're a Bitcoin miner, you go and get a site. You're probably going to buy a plot of land or lease a plot of land, buy a lot of electrical equipment and computing equipment, which probably doesn't have that much use other than for Bitcoin mining. So there's lots of what I've just described that for a credit professional providing credit into the sector, that makes you concerned. You've got really volatile EBITDA. It's all over the place. Really capital intensive, long payback cycles. That's a tough situation to be in for one of those operators. Two questions. One is I could see the appeal from a lending perspective towards existing businesses that are convinced that this is a business that they want to stay in, seeing the value proposition and then seeing the attractive potential upside if borrowers don't really have a choice. In other words, because it's such a niche, it's an interesting place to lend into as long as you understand and price the risk really well, you're bound to actually make a pretty decent return because of that. Why would anyone want to be in the Bitcoin mining business as of today? And typically, what is the profile? Are these existing incumbents? Do you see new entities? entrants that might find a way to monetize other assets or other activities that they have? What is the construct of that audience? There's something quite fascinating about Bitcoin mining industry, and I can't think of any other industry which has this characteristics I'm about to describe. If you are mining a Bitcoin and you produce a Bitcoin and I mine a Bitcoin, our product is homogenous. Absolutely no difference. So whether you are closer to suppliers doesn't matter. If you are mining coal, there'd be a function of what is the type of coal? How close are you to your customers? What is the transportation costs? There is none of that. For Bitcoin mining, the entire name of the game is a homogenous product. It's all about cost of production. Everything's about cost of production. And I'll have one more layer 
onto Bitcoin mining, which I think makes it a little bit unique and frankly, economically extremely Darwinian as an industry. And that probably it's the only way to describe it is that there is a curve of how the underlying algorithm functions. There's a fixed number of Bitcoin, which is generated at given time intervals. If there are more mouths to feed, if there are more miners, they will each get less through what's called difficulty adjustments. So the very nature of the beast is that if you have a period of time where miners are earning significant rewards well over and above their cost of capital, a whole bunch of other people are going to go, wow, look at all that economic profit that's been created. That's yum. I would like some. Their capital will come in, will get deployed into new capacity, more mouths to feed. Everyone's profitability drops. So this is an industry which is where the market capacity is self-regulating. And that's why I use this Darwinian term. And I think that is a defining characteristic of the industry. So when you do get these periods of extraordinary profitability, which has occurred for Bitcoin mining over time, our thesis is that when you look into the really long term, three, five, 10 years, then the effective return from mining, and I'm going to steal a Luxor term of hash price, which considers both the BTC price and the difficulty, which is how they adjust how many mouths get to participate, will always mean revert. It will always come back down because every time the profitability jumps up, everyone will go, hey, if the probability gets really high, I'll be saying to my mother, 78-year-old mum, mum, can I shove some mining gear in your garage? I'll just take it from the grid. I don't care how much electricity costs because the mining is so profitable. Everybody will do it. And clearly you can imagine that on an industrial scale. It's almost like an arbitrage premium that compresses and expands depending on where you are in the cycle and gets arbitraged away as capital sees an opportunity to step in until it compresses to a point where it becomes uneconomical. What is the level of sophistication of your counterparts on the minor side? Thinking about CFOs, controllers, risk managers, what have you found to be the caliber of people you deal with? So look, there's an enormous range and it probably depends on where you want to play in the sector. So you'll find um, publicly listed, very, very large mining companies um, with, albeit their market cap is now substantially smaller than it once was. And you'll find some really experienced engineering, financial, treasury professionals there. Sometimes they'll have their own traders on staff, you know, full spectrum. I, I tend not to spend my time with that part of the market. Initially I started and I've stopped doing that. So I'm not well placed to make a comment on on that part of the market. Um, our broader thesis is that's not the part of the market which is going to generate sustainable value through the cycles. So we have um, chosen to stay clear of it. And we're spending much more of our time with two other types of companies, which are energy businesses, which own mineral rights or own underlying renewable assets that are um, uh, looking for how can Bitcoin mining be added to inside their own value chain to monetize energy that is not otherwise getting an attractive price to market because they generate energy and there's sometimes there's an excess of it and they're not getting attractive price and intermittent demand for energy. That's one type. And then there's another type. I'm going to call them the real innovators, the people that are going out there hunting for energy that is um, unusually cheap because no one else wants it. So that is energy that is uh, truly stranded and energy that is otherwise wasted. So I'm sort of sort of segmenting the industry between the people that are very large, on-chain, public, people that are big energy companies, which are dabbling on the side, but some of them be independent energy producers. And a lot of those, particularly in the United States, independent energy producers, or the innovators. And the innovators is a broad spectrum. And on the innovators, I reference the people going after stranded energy as sort of Bitcoin miners. But then what I'm also starting to see is people are doing what I call industrial augmentation. So they're going into existing businesses that 
use energy for whatever it may be, a pulp mill, a brewery, a greenhouse, a something else. And they go into that business and they sort of ask asking themselves, do you sometimes have energy that you can source that doesn't get used at some parts of the day? Do you sometimes have a value for heat, which is generated from the mining equipment or from the engines, which is juicing out electricity, which might come off gas? Do you have value for heat? Could that heat heat water? So that sort of augmentation, I think, is a real growth area as well for the industry. So when I think about your question of, we'll talk about the talent base. When you talk to the innovator end, what I come across is people that are, who can be amazing at oil and gas, amazing at natural resources, great engineering mindset. There's a lot of engineering to be done. And when cost of production is the name of the game, when we can't differentiate our product, my Nike shoe can't be better than your Adidas shoe. It's the same Bitcoin. It all comes down to, did you get the energy cheaper? And for the same dollar of CapEx, did you spit out more what we call hashing power that gives you more Bitcoin? So that means everything about your engineering value chain just needs to be a little bit better than the next person. So when you're all drinking from the trough, you want some people to be operating at a much lower cost of production than the others. And they're the ones you want to try and do business with because they're the ones that will make money because the industry will keep reverting back to that long-term normal, that equilibrium point. So when I deal with a smaller end, um, I find, and that for sort of maybe back to our edge, I find when I deal with that smaller end of business, some of the skills that the team and I have, probably more financially orientated structuring, is more complementary to their teams. If you go to really, really big public companies, I'll find people that I'll go, okay, you and I have got the same resume. I'm not sure I can add that much to them. They've got their own networks. They've got their own structuring skills. Or at the smaller end, maybe the, some of the skills the team and I had can be more, can complement them a little bit better. So we also think not only is that an end which can generate more value, albeit in smaller dollops, because that, uh, that smaller end, in particular, the innovators, they're not building 500 megawatt facilities. They're doing five here, two there, 10 there, wherever the stranded energy may be. Um, those are the people where we think well, we've got some of the skills to augment what they do and help them be successful. Makes sense. Now, one thing that comes to mind as I'm hearing you talk about these different profiles of, that fall in this broad category of Bitcoin mining, going back to your credit and lending, it seems to me that the thing that credit investors look for is reliability, steadiness of cash flows. There's a reason why private equity has moved into buying SaaS software companies because SaaS revenue is looks a lot like fixed income. And so you can tag on debt on debt, essentially, right? Because you've got a stream of cash flows that's, for the most part, highly predictable. It strikes me as this audience here has a highly volatile set of cash flows, right? And a lot of what we're discussing here also is highly cyclical in nature, right? Spurts of energy that you can monetize at discrete times throughout the day, throughout the year. As a credit underwriter or originator, how do you think about compensating your investors for that risk? How do you build that component that if assessed properly will align the incentives from both the borrower side and the lending side? Yeah, really good question. So the volatility of EBITDA in this industry is higher than almost any other industry I've ever worked in. So to your point, normally a debt investor says, hey, that volatility gets too high. I'm not sure I want to play, please. So in that situation, the appropriate capital structure for businesses which have highly volatile EBITDA is very small amounts of debt. They cannot be highly levered businesses because they won't survive the next drawdown in their EBITDA. So the quantum of debt needs to be much more modest. 
that you'll find in other industries, even for the best performance. The second is particularly when you're dealing with the innovators, I would characterize as more as venture debt, high yield venture. So you need to be quite creative, I think, in how you play across the capital structure. We've just said that you'd expect most of the capital structure to be based on equity and a small amount of debt. But then even the debt may have some characteristics in the debt that can be structured, which give it um, some participation in upside to almost inject equity-like performance in a liquid form that can be monetized into debt instruments. So uh, we have a, a format that um, we've been facilitating some off-chain and I hope to do some on-chain, which enables uh, lenders to participate in debt where the debt is one secured, because sometimes in these instances, where you're dealing with highly volatile, they may buy certain types of plant and machinery equipment, which does have strong uh, use cases in other industries. So I think about the loss given default, and that means not mining rigs, gensets, engines, alternators, less extent transformers, but you want to try and find less correlated collateral to put in your um, security package. So that takes some risk out for the debt investor. And ideally, you'd like them to be able to participate if you were to get some of those um, periodic um, or episodic is probably a better way because you don't know when it's going to happen. Episodic rush where Bitcoin appreciates harder than new than um, new hash price can new hash rate can come online. Hash price, the profitability, the unit revenue per for each miner can grow. We think in a temporary way. We think the market will bring it back down again. So you'd love debt investors to be able to participate in that in a liquid form because as opposed to just giving them warrants in the capital structure, which is then highly illiquid on a company which might be five years away from a liquidity event. Now that is a valid strategy, but when you're dealing with an industry which has uncertainty like you've referenced, the discount you'll place to a five-year cash flow is obviously that curve is pretty sharp. I think you need to be creative. And again, back to why the team and I are sort of happy being here and it works for six of us, I think. It doesn't work for 20 or 30. There's not a big fee pool to be made in this industry providing debt. Now, because there's only small quantums of it, it has to be highly structured and nuanced. Otherwise, people won't get good returns through the cycle. The slight twist on everything I've just said is we haven't seen much Bitcoin denominated debt. I've been referencing USD, US dollar denominated debt. And I there's a couple of um, innovative miners out there that um, have shown an appetite for and have issued through the private markets BTC denominated debt. I think that's really, really interesting and really, really smart because for Bitcoin denominated debt, it has what we call right way risk characteristics. Well, that's what I'm digging out of the ground. I'm mining. And also a lot of the equipment that a miner buys, that equipment is highly correlated with Bitcoin price. So if Bitcoin price is low, the equipment's cheap. So they can take the Bitcoin, turn it to dollars, buy the equipment, deploy it, earn the Bitcoin, pay it back. I think that's a really innovative sector. We haven't seen a lot of uptake on it from many miners. I encourage all miners to consider it as part of their capital structure. Most are reluctant to do so because they are so excited about what they see as the, the mispricing of the curve. They they attach a probability far greater than the rest of the market does to Bitcoin going up to 200,000, 300, whatever number they come up with than the rest of the market. So they are reluctant to give away any upside at all. And you know what, I can respect that. But I, I'm, I've also got a lot of admiration for people that um, know all about downside and they want to protect that. Yeah. And that's, that's the adage of, of the credit investor. So if I summarize, you know, I put my structuring and derivative hat on what you just said. And I found that very interesting because two main risk components. And recall when you're talking about the work you did, understanding the parameters that drive valuation. So here there is a volatility component, which is the risk that 
impacts the probability of default. And as we've referred to, volatility on the underlying assets is very high. So as a debt investor, if you're lending into that, you somehow need a way in the payoff that the investment gives you to hedge that volatility because inherently you are short that volatility. And finding ways to get long in the ways you've described, whether it's participating in the upside in some ways, will help mitigate the risk and align the incentives. The other thing that I've, I, you said that was very interested in, I'm summarizing for, for listeners, is always look as a credit investor at the correlation of the underlying collateral. To your point, the mining rigs, their price, their value at the end of the day, highly correlated with Bitcoin, right? So you want to look at other things. That affects the parameter that you named. And again, for listeners, loss given default. In other words, if the borrower defaults under debt, what are you going to be left with? And depending on how well you've assessed which collateral you want to be underlying the loan, you may end up with a lot of recovery value. You may end up with nothing. And so I thought it was great how you split those two. How do I hedge the volatility? And how do I make sure that the collateral is robust to the default cycle? I thought that was very helpful. As we look forward, you've just gone through a difficult year in 2022. Were you sort of a an outside observer? You said you dabbled a little bit yourself. Obviously, speaking and advising to Bitcoin miners throughout the year, I think you saw firsthand what was happening in the market, right? From a from a risk perspective and the impact on on their balance sheets. On a going forward basis, what do you think needs to change overall in the digital asset space for it to thrive? Not just Bitcoin miners, but overall the space. You are now part of the crypto space. So you probably have some views as to some of the things that could be done better and, and what are the areas that need to be innovated on. And you talked about downside. Innovation is not just about figuring out the upside. It's also eliminating the downside. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So look, I've got some thoughts as it relates to credit and lending, the credit parts and parts of DeFi and the like. If we want blockchain technology, and I'll focus on private credit markets, blockchain technology to enable uh, transparency and lower cost of intermediation to deliver better outcomes for both borrowers and lenders, then I think being at the forefront of regulatory compliance with a regulatory first mindset, boots and braces, is uh, really important for uh, engendering trust in both lenders that participate in the ecosystem and borrowers, rather than the, well, let's do it and then we'll figure it out later. So I think they're a, being a regulatory first perspective on that, starting with the regulatory intent, I think is very powerful and is critical for getting the mass sale adoption that we want. Now, my views on this one are a little bit different to many because the sort of permissionless, there are many in the broader financial system that um, would argue that the, uh, the hurdles um, in most geographies to restrict retail participation and in investments, many would argue those hurdles are, those are blunt that are ineffective, they are therefore, that's part of their argument for saying a permissionless environment is um, much more appropriate. My view on that's slightly different. I agree they're blunt. I agree they're imperfect, but I think they're better than none. So no doubt they could evolve. A bit like democracy, it's always an improving thing. I think that regulatory first, start with institutional adoption. And then the next thing is it deliver better outcomes. So if we're not delivering better risk adjusted returns, because we use this technology, the technology in itself, its value is only if for us, it enables us to deliver best, better risk adjusted returns, which means that we provide better transparency. It means which our stakeholders value. It means that um, enables them to make better decisioning about what they think the underlying risks are and therefore really make informed decisions. 
It means on defaults, how that gets managed and how that participates. And we've got to do that for a lower fees. The moment a lender looks at it and says, Glenn, can we just please set up an SPV and we'll do a private loan and structure the whole lot? Then that, that suggests there's something that we're missing here, that we've got to deliver some value. I hope, and I'm that this year and for however long it lasts, it's going to be hard to make a quick buck in this environment in the next little while. Designing and building a service to sell to someone else in the crypto bubble probably isn't going to work this year. It worked last year and the year before in spades. Now you've got a leverage and technology to design and improve an existing service to someone outside of the ecosystem so capital can come in. And it can't just be VC money. It needs to solve some real pain points. The technology in and of itself is not sufficient. You have to have quality underwriting, quality assets, and good outcomes. In other words, there's got to be something in it for investors as well as for borrowers. But naturally, as you and I know, there's always going to be adverse selection to mitigate. Borrowers who can't find lending anywhere else are going to come to these new sources of capital because we're eager to bring them on chain. We have to be very, very careful as to what we do because credit is all about trust and track record. And if we bring on new types of untested collateral and assets on chain, what may end up happening is we might get higher than average returns as we've seen, but then we will run into trouble because we don't really know how these assets behave. We need to make sure that Whatever has been time-tested on the TradFi side is replicated here, which means bringing assets that are in existence where we have constructs and way to manage portfolios that are resilient to credit cycles and also bring them on the financing side to investors who wouldn't otherwise have access to these assets. And so if you can actually deliver answer to pain points, bridging assets and investors who wouldn't otherwise be able to interact and you deliver good outcomes, then you have something. But the technology in and of itself will not address that unless you could deliver significantly higher returns or significantly cut down my cost and not create some additional downside reputational downside, regulatory downside, then yes, I would endorse that. But barring this, it's an uphill battle. So I think what the industry needs to focus on is addressing those, those issues. So it sounds like there's a lot of execution ahead, and I'm sure you'll add to it and you'll pivot. But when you think about what drives you every day, what is it that you feel you haven't accomplished yet? I'll be really happy and I think the team will be really happy when we are generating enough cash flow that they and enough certainty of our business model that they can have conviction that the cash flow is going to meet their salaries and they can continue to do interesting work and have job security. So I'm looking forward to hitting that milestone and I think that'll be a really nice milestone for the team. And in being an entrepreneur, I am learning an enormous amount and I'm incredibly grateful. There's so many people I've met in the industry who by the time they're my age, they've done like five businesses. I'm learning some things today that I'm meeting people. They're like, yeah, I solved that problem when I was 27 on my second business. I'm like, wow, okay, well, I just learned it. Whether it's employing people in different jurisdictions, in big banks, you don't worry about that. You've got whole departments that do that stuff for you. There's so many aspects of running a business that um, I am learning. And one of the things that's been fantastic about the Bitcoin mining segment is because people aren't competing on their Bitcoin, I assume it's because of this. There's no real sense that if I help the guy next door or the girl next door, they're going to eat my lunch because the market's bigger than the two of us. So one of the things I found really wonderful about the sector is people will share knowledge. Now, if what they, their special source you were going to go and share with 20% of the hash rate, that clearly that's a problem. But the industry is too fragmented for that. So I um, and we wanted to stay fragmented to support the decentralization of the network. So there's lots about the industry, which I'm loving because when I'm driving around Texas, which I'll be doing all again through February, 
with one of my colleagues. I find these people that are really patient. They're teachers on energy markets, on engineering, and that's a really stimulating place to be. There are two things that I retain from that. Thirst for learning. You care about your employees. You care about their own success. You care about aligning them. And I think that's important. It goes back to culture and culture is what makes or breaks businesses. Glenn, it's been wonderful chatting. If you are ever in down in Texas and, and around Austin, would love to meet for a barbecue and continue this conversation. I think you bring a wealth of experience and expertise to the industry. So again, I want to thank you very much for participating and I, I look forward to staying in touch. No, my pleasure, me too, thank you. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. 